Well, let's just pray. Father God, we want to pray that your spirit would come, that you would be with the children in children's church, Lord, that you give them peace and grace and joy in their lessons, Lord, that they might encounter Jesus for themselves. And Lord, that you give wisdom to their teachers. We pray for us that you would be with us, that you would uh, help us to understand your word and to know what it means for us. And Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come through your spirit and speak to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, we're doing a series uh, called uh, The Quiet Revolution. And uh, it's looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're coming to what is probably the biggest question uh, for human beings ever asked. What is the meaning of life? And there you go. That's, uh, I'm gonna, I've got 25, 40 minutes uh, to answer that for you. Don't worry. It's be no problem at all. What's the point? What is the point? It was something I was asking myself last night at 10 o'clock. What is the point of anything anymore? <laughs> It's a question that's puzzled philosophers, theologians, comedians, and teenagers flouncing out of their rooms for the whole of human history. Douglas Adams, uh, not so much in uh, popular culture now, but when I grew up, uh, there are two books that I've read, or three books, that I, three series of books that I've read uh, multiple times. Uh, one is the Chronicles of Narnia that I read loads, uh, largely because I read them to my children. Uh, the second is the Bible, obviously winner. And the third is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and, uh, which I love. This is Douglas Adams' answer to what's the meaning of life. What's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, deep thought. We want you to tell us the answer. The answer to what? The answer to life, the universe, everything. We'd really like an answer. Something simple. Hmm, you have to think about that. Return to this place in exactly seven and a half million years. Deep thought. Do you have an answer for you? Yes, but you're not going to like it. Doesn't matter. We must know it. All right. The answer to the ultimate question. Of life, the universe, and everything is forty two. Forty two? Yes, yes, I thought you'd over quite thoroughly. It is, it's forty two. <laughs> 42. The answer is 42. So I told you I'd get there. I got there in under four minutes. Adams' answer is, is absurd and funny. I mean, how can the meaning of life have a numerical value? Um, but what he is uh, getting at, I think, is a, a serious point, which is that most of us don't even know what the questions are that we should be asking. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, Deep Thought then goes away and works for another four billion years on what the question is that they should be answering. Uh, I, I expect that most of us don't get as far as reaching an answer. 
We just move through life from stage to stage as time passes. This is what most people in life uh, go through. They're just walking from stage to stage. I think it can be like a factory line. That's quite a depressing way of viewing life. A factory line without uh, much of a sense of what's doing. We just move from one thing to another. We might go to school and then we graduate from school and then we might go to university or get a job and then we might get married or not get married. But we don't really give any thought to it. All our life choices have been made for us. And so it can feel like we're just moving from thing to thing. This was actually brilliantly summed up in an advert for the Alpha course a few years ago. This is what the Alpha advert was. It's quite, a, it's quite a bleak worldview. What I like about that is it's funny all the way through, and then you get to the end, and you're like, oh. And that's the point. That it, the factory line view of life, the, the, the functional uh, understanding of the meaning of life that most people go through life with, I include myself for a lot of my life, is actually quite bleak, and we get around that bleakness by not thinking about it. Uh, that's how uh, we avoid it. The, the idea that there's something more to life is so pervasive that uh, not only has Alpha massively uh, exploited that, that message, that idea, it's now been done millions and millions and millions and millions of times. Millions of people worldwide have undertaken a course engineered by a, a London Anglican church to answer the question, what's the meaning of life? Because so many people are struggling with this question. They don't like the idea of the factory line. And uh, it's one of the reasons why religion is booming worldwide. You might have thought that uh, from the West that religion would be on a slight decline. And it's true that Christians are in more of a minority in the UK now than they ever have been. But worldwide, the one philosophy that's in decline is atheism. Uh, that's shrinking every year as a percentage of the world's population is those who don't believe there's any meaning to life at all. Because it's such a rubbish answer, basically. It's so unsatisfying. It doesn't match up, doesn't explain anything about human life, the way we actually experience the world. And yet we do, granted that we all sense there's a purpose and that we want to find out what it is, we can still struggle with identifying it. Uh, I think this is the case even for Christians, actually. I want to be complacent about it. I know that I struggled with this even when I was a Christian. I, I came to know Jesus and I, I experienced what St. Paul writes about in Romans, that uh, the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I, I knew that sense. And yet, I found it hard to identify the... Oh, there's just somebody looking for uh, someone at the, front, at the back of you, just go and... I found it hard to identify uh, what it was I should actually be doing with my life. What's the point? 
Unfortunately, we have the greatest moral and spiritual teacher in human history to help us find the answer. So that's a winner. We're going to carry on looking at the most influential talk ever given, normally known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's not actually one sermon. It's uh, lots of uh, uh, pieces of Jesus' teaching summarized and brought together in one kind of highlights reel. If you want to know what it was that Jesus taught, what summarized Jesus' message, this is it. And in the first part of that talk, you can check this out in our previous couple of uh, sessions, Jesus speaks about the journey of a soul that's being salvaged by God. That's what the Beatitudes are. Those, those sayings at the beginning say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And so on. It's a picture of a soul that's being forgiven and healed. Someone who knows the grace and love of God, who recognises that they can, they can bring nothing to God, and that God requires nothing from them. Someone who's come to trust Jesus' life and death and resurrection to bring forgiveness and renewal. The type of person we would normally describe as a Christian. And this person has set their will to be transformed. They desire to be different. You see that there was that transition in the middle of the Beatitudes. You can find it. Uh, the centre at which the uh, sayings turn. Where we start to pursue righteousness and justice and mercy. Not just for ourselves, but for other people. It's a picture of someone who wants to be like Jesus. It's a beautiful picture, actually. I think it answers the longing of the human soul. That actually we want to be different. We sense we're made to be different. And this is how we could be. And yet it leaves the question, why? What is the point? Is there a point in life? Does God have a purpose for us that goes beyond just changing us? The answer, Jesus says, is yes. Our lives have a purpose. Your life has a purpose. God has a plan for your life. God is saving us so he can use us in the world. In one sense, it's tempting to think of uh, God taking something broken and fixing it and then just putting it on a shelf so he can look at it. I do that. Uh, we fix stuff up in our house sometimes and I, and I do it so I can look at it. But more often, I fix something up so that I can use it. There's a chair in our living room at the moment that's resplendent in gold and blue velvet. Uh, it's an old desk chair that we got for free off Free Cycle and it's a project with Abigail because we needed an extra chair in the bedroom, you know, the bedroom in the living room rather. We need an extra chair for meetings. This chair was falling apart so we went to John Lewis and we bought an off cuts of velvet fabric and I chose them because I knew that they were worth £100. I got them for a tenner, winner. And uh, went to the shop and I said uh, to Sam and Abby, you can choose the paint. And they uh, have luxurious tastes, so they chose gold. They wanted the chair in their living room to be gold. And uh, so if you come into our living room, there is this, there is this what looks like a throne. A kind of armless throne. Waiting for you. And we fixed it up, but we fixed it up so we can use it. Right? There aren't enough chairs in our living room. We needed one that was firm enough and had adjustable height. So we got an old desk chair and we fixed it. So we can use it. God is fixing us so he can use us. So he can use us. He's fixing you so he can use you. Your life has a purpose. My life has a purpose. Every week I give a, a summary of the big idea we're going to look at. And this is this week's. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God by resisting evil and doing good. That sounds straightforward. So go and do it. Actually, it, a lot of what I'm saying today will not be big explanations. 
Because most of what Jesus teaches is painfully easy to understand and ridiculously hard to put into practice. You won't hear from me an enormous amount of explaining what this means, but I do want to encourage us to come to God so that it can be real for us. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God by resisting evil and doing good. Glorify God by resisting evil and doing good. Let's read what he says. This is Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. Uh, You want to find in your Bibles? I'm going to put it on the screen as well. If you're new to Christianity, you're not sure where to start with the Bible, why don't start with Jesus? That's the best place to start. You can begin at the beginning of the New Testament. You'll find these uh, stories about Jesus that are shaped together to tell you something of who he is. And uh, this is his big teaching moment in Matthew. So it's five, we're going to read verse five, uh, chapter 5, sorry, verse 13 to 16. Jesus talking to the people who come to follow him. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people put a light, uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. But on a lampstand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's the word of God. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God by resisting evil and doing good. There are two parts to what Jesus says. First, he says we're to be like salt. What does that mean? Well, being like salt in the ancient world means being used in the same way that salt was used. Now, the way that they used salt was not simply as a condiment on food. I mean, I'm guessing people have always found out that salt tastes quite nice on food, but that wasn't the real use for salt. The use for salt in a world without fridges was to keep stuff from going bad. Particularly if you lived in a hot place like Israel. Meat and other food would go off very quickly. You still find this is still, uh, is it Biltong? Have we got any South Africans in the house? Yes, Biltong, still preserved with salt. The idea is this is meat that you could do, you could put it in a nuclear explosion, it wouldn't go off. Well, I'm not, not sure anything goes off in a nuclear explosion, actually, in fairness, that probably just gets cooked quite quickly. But um, salt keeps stuff from going bad. You have things that naturally they are made good and naturally tend to get bad. And so you put salt on them to stop or to slow that process. Something that's made good, that's made wholesome, that will naturally tend to decay, and you put salt on it to stop it happening. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. God saves us so we can act as a preservative for the world around us. We do this by being like Jesus. What does it mean? Well, when we find selfishness and bitterness, greed and lust, anger and hatred, idolatry and despair, we resist it. You're the salt of the earth. 
We resist it by living differently in what we do and what we say. Our lives, Jesus says, are to slow and in some cases reverse the grip of darkness on the world around us. The world around us is good. It was created good. People were made to be good. But they have a tendency in all of us, it's what we call original sin, it's a tendency in all of us to go bad, to do wrong, to hurt each other. And as Christians, the reason God has saved you, the reason God is making you like Jesus, is so that you can be someone who slows and stops that process. You're the soul of the earth. Let me give you an example from a woman I know who works in the city of London. There was a big drinking culture in her office. Uh, in particular, this was how it worked with trainees, that the trainees would come in and the expectation would be that you'd go drinking with the older uh, workers. And the older workers, as tradition would have it, usually men, would try and get the younger trainees, usually women, drunk. And then get them to do things they would not normally do. And this was a high-risk strategy for the young trainees, because if you did do this, then you would be disgraced in the office. I mean, patriarchy's the pits, isn't it? But this is how it was. It's how it is in the city of London. So my friend arrived at the pub as a young trainee. There was uh, a lot of competition to be kept on in the workplace. And uh, the expectation was you would take the drinks. They would be bought for you and you would take them. They would be bought for you and you would take them. It was a massive faux pas not to do this. And in a circumstances where there are four of you competing for one job at the end of it, the one thing you don't want to do is commit a faux pas. So my friend walks into the pub and uh, they start to buy the drinks and she says, actually I don't want to drink, I want orange juice. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who drink alcohol, sometimes we don't do it to excess, but in certain circumstances it can be wise not to. My friend walks into the pub, she says, I, I, don't, want, I don't want that drink. No thank you. Um, if you want to buy me a drink, buy me orange juice. And uh, this is like stunned would be the way you put it. Subdued. What, what are you doing? Why? What? She said, no, I want orange juice. They bought her orange juice, they go and buy another orange juice. And then she leaves. And I'm sure, although I don't know, that there was some conversation afterwards about who on earth this person was who came in and was just drinking orange juice. Why on earth were they doing this? What, didn't they know the rules of the game? So my friend keeps on going, and then she gets to the pub, say a week later, and what she notices is all of a sudden a lot of the women are having orange juice. A lot of the trainees are having orange juice. Actually, this happened with holidays as well. There was a culture that you would never take holiday if you were young, a young worker there. Which it was wicked. They would work people into the ground and then they would discard three of them every year. It was iniquitous. And uh, she said, no, I'd like a holiday, please. I need a holiday. It's not good for my family for me not to have a holiday. I'd like a holiday, please. And uh, she went on holiday and then blow me down if the next month the other three trainees didn't also go on holiday. You see... The culture was tending to decay. The culture in this office, people left to their own devices, were tending to get each other drunk and exploit each other. They were tending to work each other until they were breaking. And it took somebody who came in who said, do you know what, I want you to like me, but what you think of me doesn't matter to me as much as what Jesus thinks of me. 
and Jesus tells me I'm his daughter and loves me, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay. If you don't want me because I'm acting rightly, because I'm doing the right thing, then I'm fine with that. And it turned out that not only did she win their respect, she eventually got the job, everybody else also got a job at the end of the year, and the place turned from being somewhere that exploited and abused women to being somewhere that respected and treated women well, and somewhere that gave their trainees holiday every year rather than working them into the ground. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. You're the salt of the earth. You're salt of the earth. Notice that she didn't walk in with a Bible, slam it down on the bar, say, look, I've underlined all the, passage, the relevant passages in what? In red. Right? Have a look, guys, and I'll be back tomorrow, and I'm sure you'll all be reformed. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He says uh, later on, let your good deeds shine before people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, right? She was salt. You're the salt of the earth. It might be that this is... uh, I mean, this sounds like a trivial example. Actually, it wasn't trivial in the sense that doing something trivial at the beginning stops something really bad at the end. But... It might be that actually you have to do something non-trivial if you want to follow Jesus. It might be standing up to bullying in the school or in the workplace, saying, actually, no, I don't think the way we're treating that person is very fair. It's not fair to sack them because you made a mistake. It might be challenging some fashionable but damaging ethic. You know, a lot of the way that uh, the, a lot of the way that adult culture works. Right, I'm going to say the emperor's got no clothes at the moment. The way the way the adult culture works is that we construct ethics for how we want to behave ourselves, so we can get what we want, and then we project them onto children. It might be that you're put in a position where you have to say, "Hang on a minute, I get that you want to be able to do X, Y, and Z, but this is actually damaging for that child." And so, to be honest, you're going to have to control yourself because. We need to protect them. Not just if you work in social work, it might be if you work in schools or do something else. You know, standing up to people who don't want to get what they want. Who aren't going to get what they want. It might be standing up to a system of oppression. You know, Wilberforce did. Or Wesley did. Be thinking a bit more about that in a, later. The slave trade was not abolished in the Western world by people who were willing to go with the crowd. It was abolished by people who were willing to be sold. And to slow the decay of the world around them and then to reverse it. It can be hard. There are people who don't like salt. Particularly when they make money or gain pleasure from decay. But if we don't resist it, if we won't resist it, who will? That sounds terribly serious, doesn't it? Well, let's be brighter, shall we? Second, Christians are supposed to be light. You are the light of the world town built on a hill can't be hidden. It's difficult to understand this in a world of street lighting. But in a world where there's no street lighting and the only light around is one town which is built there and that has lights in the homes, a light hid on a, built on a hill can be seen for miles around. Um, Don Carson, the Canadian academic, says that in some rural parts of Canada you can see a town a hundred miles away because there's no other light. In a house which is filled with darkness, one small lamp makes all the difference for the people who live there. We're to be light. It's a slightly different picture. You see, salt stops stuff going off. Say that quickly. Salt stops stuff going off. Light shows the way. Light makes people able to live differently. 
It enables, it brightens. We're to be light. We are, in the way we live, the good we do and say, to show a better way. We're to show God's vision for humanity. It can be small as acting out of kindness and compassion that goes beyond what people expect. That you have a friend at the school gates or in the office who's going through a really hard time and everybody else pats them on the back and says, oh, I'm sorry, but you turn up at their gate with a cake. Or with a gift. Or you turn up and say, actually, I'm going to look after your kids tonight so that you can go out because you really need a night off. Going beyond what, can we, what people expect. It can be when we make choices that defy the values of the world around us. When we give our money away. I remember Heather and my neighbour, who's dead now so I can share her story. It's, she, uh, when we first moved to Hersham, she never went to church at all. And she actually started coming to church through living next to us. Not again because we were particularly great. But because there was something about people who'd left the city of London to come and live in, in Nowheresville, Surrey, sorry. <laughs> on very little money. And who had chosen to do it together that really bothered her. I found her walking around her house one day saying there must be something in it. There must be something in it. So she started going to church. Why? Because someone had done something that so defied her expectations for how life was to be lived. Heather's probably told in one sermon the story of how we ended up, um, how she ended up becoming a Christian. It was actually because we were, uh, we liked each other a lot. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, have you seen her? And I actually said I wouldn't go out with her. So actually, Heather, I'm not going to go out with you because I'm, I'm done with casual dating people I'm not going to marry. And the truth is, I want to marry someone who shares the same values as me. And the most important to me is faith. I'm a Christian. I want to marry a Christian. It so irritated her and annoyed her and intrigued her that somebody would think of something else being more important than she was. That she went away and started reading the Bible. Read Christianity Explored, committed her life to Christ, and you can ask her the rest. I mean, Heather's testimony is extraordinary. The stuff, that, stuff she went through, she won't say it because she's too embarrassed, but the stuff Heather went through when she became a Christian was more than anyone else I know. And it all started because someone made a decision that conflicted with everything she'd been told. Now, Heather knew Christians before. What she was waiting for was somebody who would live in a way that said, actually, this matters more to me than anybody else. Anything else. It can come when we give our money away, when we build up and encourage, when we honour our employers, even when we believe they are wrong. I mean, that can be the hardest thing, can't it? You're working for a boss who's an idiot. I'll use the language that we all think. You're wrong. I can't believe I'm doing this. What a waste of my time. Do it anyway and do it to the best of your ability. Honour them. Give yourself for them. And they'll notice. When we care for one another and for strangers. People notice when Christians are not embarrassed to own the name of Jesus and to act like him. If you do this, you'll find that the effect on the world around you is transformative. People will notice even even if they don't comment. She is so kind, they will think. He is so wise, so committed to justice. She has such integrity. I want to live like that. I wonder who Jesus is. There was a guy in my office called PJ. I don't know if he listens to these sermons. If he does, PJ, I hope you're well. He uh, was a senior barrister, uh, QC. And what I found out later is that every time the, the Chambers was taking a decision, they waited to see what PJ would think about it. Not because he was the 
the guy who best understood business. He wasn't. But because PJ was a Christian, everybody knew PJ was a Christian, they wanted to see whether what they were doing was morally okay. That wasn't a chamber full of Christians, far from it. Right? But everyone knew that PJ loved justice. If PJ was on board with it, chances are it was a just and right thing to do. Everyone had noticed. It wasn't that he was, that he was named the sort of justice coordinator for the chambers. Nobody talked about it. I only found out in conversation with someone later, another friend of mine, that they were waiting to find out what PJ thought before they voted. I'll tell you about a friend of mine called Alex Harris, a guy I know called Alex Harris, from Beacon Church in Stafford. Alex is an ex-Marine. I don't have his picture, unfortunately. He's an ex-Marine, so, um, you know, as a guy, I'm sure this is stereotypical, but as soon as I find out somebody's an ex-Marine, I listen to what they have to say. But partly, I'm sure it's because I'm conscious that he could, you know, knock me out with his thumb. But also because the guy's got credibility. Ex-Marine. I recently heard him doing a talk and explaining one of the most significant moments in him becoming a Christian. After leaving the Marines, Alex was in a football team. He had a teammate who was a Christian. As men do, they express their affection for each other through banter and abuse. Uh, So guys, you might have noticed this, we don't like to hug each other and tell each other we love each other. That would be weird. What we like to do is tease each other remorselessly. Uh, because we're emotionally inept. So they, uh, his teammates uh, would take uh, the, the, one of the guys on Alex's team, they knew he was a committed Christian, so they would do things like when he left the change room, they'd arrange all his kit in the shape of a cross and then laugh at him when he came back. And uh, they gave him a gentle but hard time. One day they were having a club end-of-year dinner. Alex was not a Christian at this point. It was a black tie affair. He'd gone you know, in his best gear, dressed up, and uh, his uh, partner was there. And there were dinner and trophies. And then as part of the show, this working men's life in the north, they, they brought out strippers as part of the celebration. And when the strippers came out, Alex's friend uh, got up and left his seat at the table in the middle of the awards dinner and said, guys, I'm sorry, I don't want anything to do with this stuff. Walked out of the room. Now you can imagine the abuse that was being thrown at him at this point. Well, Alex would say he's one of them. Room full of working class hard northern men at the end of season football where they've had quite a lot to drink and someone stands up and says I don't want to stay for the strippers I don't want anything to do with it Alex said to me the other day he was abusing his friend outwardly and yet inwardly he was dumbstruck at what he was seeing I think Alex's exact phrase was I kept thinking what a thing it is for a man to live like this what a thing it is for a man to live like this. Now, Alex didn't become a Christian there and then. To, several years later, he met someone who explained the gospel to him. But if you ask Alex to pinpoint the moment where he started to take Jesus seriously, it was the moment his friend stood up and said, I don't want anything to do with the abuse of women in this way. You're the light of the world. My friends, this is God's mission for your life. For your life. This is the purpose for which you were saved. Actually, it's the purpose for which you were created. To glorify God by doing good and resisting evil and showing light. So how do we do it? Well, it's going to mean something different for each one of us. We all have a particular expression of mission in our context, in our families, our friendships and workplaces. You can glorify God by doing a newspaper round or teaching a class or or caring for a family or running a, a, a community event or programming computers or whatever it is you do. 
You can glorify God by resisting evil and doing good in that place, through your work, through your life. There are some common, some principles, however, that are common to everyone. The first is that before you can be used by God, you have to know God. Before we can be used by Jesus, we have to know Jesus. We have to know God loves us. We have to know that love for ourselves. Know his son died for us, for you. Jesus died for you. Individually. And then we have to receive the forgiveness he offers. The gospel is the foundation for everything and it's disarmingly simple. Do you want to know how to summarise the gospel in three statements, six words? God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. Seven words. God made it. God made you. He loves you. You are wonderful. He intended this world to be beautiful for you. And you, along with me and everyone else, broke it. We break it. That's what sin is. It's just breaking stuff. Breaking relationships. Breaking our relationship with God. Breaking our relationship with each other. Breaking the world. Right? If you don't feel like you did that, then that's great. I encourage you to write down every hour all the ways that you thought about different people that hour. Be honest with yourself. I bet you by hour three you'll be coming back to me and saying, Phil, I'm on board with part two. We did break it. We broke it. Jesus can fix it. That's the, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, the Son of God, came and loved the world so much that he came to fix you and fix the world. And he's already begun. And you can be a part of that today. If anyone ever asks you what, what, what it is that Christians believe, that's what we believe. We believe that God made it, we broke it, Jesus can fix it. It's not even seven words, is it? <laughs> Ten words. Ten words. I'm a pastor, not an accountant. If you haven't come to Christ and said you need his forgiveness and healing and trusted him for a new life and a new start, then do it today. You want to be used by God? The transformation of the world comes through those who have known the radical grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus and given their lives in response. Second, be serious about Jesus. I'm sorry, I haven't come to tickle your tummies today. And make everyone feel good. My friends, God is forming an army of light to transform the world and to resist the forces of hell. God is forming an army of light to transform the world and to resist the forces of hell. If you want to be a part of that, you've got to be serious about what you're doing. Let me put it this way. There is no human army that allows people to just poodle along at their own pace and do their own thing and decide if they really fancy fighting today. If a human general would not fancy it because a human enemy can break it down, then how much more so the divine general in his army of light? The call of Christ is not another trivial hobby to be dabbled with. Those who change the world are people who are serious about God and becoming like him. I don't know what this means for your life. That's between you and God. I can't tell you. But I do know, my friends, that we will not accomplish God's purposes. I include myself in that. We will not change the world around us until we take his call seriously. We need to be people of prayer and the Bible, grace and humility, patience and love, hope and justice. If you want to do Jesus' work, we have to share his heart. So part three is love others. First of all, love Jesus. Second, be serious about Jesus. Thirdly, love others. If you want to be Jesus to the world around you, you've got to see it the, world, the way he saw it. He loved the world. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that God so loves the world that he gave his only son for it. Do you love your neighbours? The ones who do weed 
and blow it over the fence. They're irritating. The, the ones who are at the school gates who everybody finds boorish and unpleasant. The ones in the office who smell a bit funny and no one wants to sit next to them. You know, the ones who are, are gay or straight or have black hair or pink hair. The ones who are obnoxious and have uh, tattoos or swear words across their back. You know, do you love them? Because Jesus loves them so much he died for them. Do we love our families and neighbours and colleagues enough to pray for them? To put ourselves out for them? To be honest with them? I'm not, again, I'm not talking about going and flattering people. I'm talking about being honest with them. Do you know who the most valuable friends I have are? The ones who will tell me when I'm doing something stupid. And will try and help me see it. They love me, they support me, they'll do anything for me, and they will tell me, Phil, that's, an, that's a ridiculous thing to do. And my wife this morning told me that I was significantly overdressed and needed to go and change. <laughs> Greater love have no one than this, than that they are honest with their friends. It requires real compassion. Only God can provide that. If you know you need this love for others, begin to pray. Finally, own Christ. Own your relationship with Jesus. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. We need to be open about that. So get your pens out, start underlining the Bibles where people are going wrong and then start hitting them with it. Now, don't do that. It doesn't mean going around handing out tracts. It doesn't mean beating people around the head with Bibles. It doesn't mean going into your office and decrying all of the iniquity you find there. It doesn't mean trying to turn every conversation to repentance and faith. I mean, bless them, it's this classic Sunday school thing, isn't it? The five-year-old, what's the answer to everything? The answer to everything is Jesus. If you do that, you will be a boring friend, and no one will want to be your friend. The answer to everything is not Jesus. The answer sometimes is, yes, I'd like to come round and watch the TV with you. Okay? But it does mean practicing our faith openly and without fear. St. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's a good principle. Give the reason for what you're doing. It can be as simple as this is what Jesus teaches. Why are you doing this? Why did you bring me that cake? Why do you stand up? Well, this is what Jesus teaches. Okay. It could be because I'm a Christian. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. What's the worst that can happen if you do that? I mean, honestly. What's the worst that can happen? Well, they think you're a weirdo. Most of the best people in life are weirdos, for a start. But there are worse things. They'll think you're weird, but kind. Better be thought weird, but kind, than to be thought indifferent and selfish. On the plus side, they might find eternal life. Still more, God is glorified and pleased. I'm going to finish now by reading something to you that honestly provoked me to tears. Oh, I forgot to do this. There. There you go. I worked hard on that and then forgot to do it. (laughs) You might think, what can this really achieve? What can actually... It's nice, Phil, but what does it actually do? Let me end by reading from a lecture by historian Donald Drew, summarising J.W. Breedy's monumental work, England Before and After Wesley. I'm going to have some silence. I'm just going to let God speak to us. I'm reading this because I want you to understand that this stuff really does change the world and that it's hard. So you might just want to close your eyes and listen. If you want to sleep, I understand it's hot. 
1738, Bishop Barclay declared that religion and morality in Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never, no, never before known in any Christian country. However bad you think our culture is now, let me tell you, the 18th century was worse. National church publicly muzzled with its prophetic and priestly wings clipped was in no position to refute deists and skeptics. Religion was f- squeezed into a formalised straitjacket. England had wrung from France and Spain the monopoly of the slave trade. The financial greed which it bred and fed, the brutalising of masters and slaves' lives, the indignity of labour that it engendered laid a curse on the economic and political life of the century. Moreover, the Industrial Revolution was gradually spreading and these attitudes and actions influenced many of the owners and mines, factories and mills in the treatment of their workers. In politics, nepotism, place-seeking, bribery were the order of the day, especially at election times. Britain at this time, more than at any other, was two nations, the rich and the poor. The laws were devised largely to keep the poor in their place and under control. Thus, to steal a sheep, to snare a rabbit, to break a young tree, to pick a pocket for more than one shilling, to grab goods from someone's hand and run away with them were hanging offences. Executions at Tyburn in London were known as hanging shows. The infant death rate tells its own tale, but only for London are authentic statistics available. These show that, for example, between 1730 and 50, three out of four of all children born to all classes died before their fifth birthday. James Hanway, the Christian friend of parish and pauper children, produced scores of statistics and pamphlets preserved in the British Library, revealing his investigations into the treatment and death rate of the parish infant poor, death occurring at time after time because of the murder and the practice of exposing newly born babies to perish in the streets. As a concomitant of those brutalising activities, but extending into other areas, gambling was, for all classes, a national obsession, bringing appalling ruin to thousands upon thousands. Until the advent of the Sunday school movement, towards the end of the century, little or no provision was made for the free education of the poor, except for the church system of charity schools. They were invariably a farce, most of the teachers being half illiterate. Millions of English people at this time had never set foot in any kind of school. But those of school leaving age were usually apprenticed, often sold to masters, and frequently viciously treated. Into this spiritual and moral quagmire stepped John Wesley. Not just John Wesley, but thousands who with him. He began at once to declare the glad tidings of salvation in prisons, workhouses, and whatever churches would open their pulpits to him. And they were few and far between. Wesley, aged 36, preached his first open-air sermon, and unknown to him or George Whitfield, who was with him, the Great Awakening, the Re-Evangelical Revival, was born. It was to be reared for many years in an atmosphere of insolence, contempt, abuse, and violence. That Methodist, that enthusiast, was described also by Anglican clergy as that master of iniquity, a diabolical seducer and imposter and fanatic. For three decades, magistrates, squires and clergy turned a blind eye to the constant drunken and brutal attacks by mobs and gangs on Wesley and his supporters. They endured physical assault with missiles of various kinds. Frequently, bulls would be driven into the midst of congregations or musical instruments blared to drown out the preacher's voice. Time after time, the Wesleys and Whitfield narrowly escaped death while several of their itinerant preachers were attacked and their houses set on fire. Hundreds of anti-revival publications appeared as well as regular inaccurate and scurrilous newspaper reports and articles. The virulent attacks came not surprisingly often from the clergy. The effect of this erudite Oxford Don's preaching, whose speech was always classical English and whose bearing was that of a Christian gentleman, was invariably extraordinary. Gradually sailors, soldiers, miners, fishermen, smugglers, industrial workers, thieves, vagabonds, men, women and children listened intently. 
in apt and reverent attention, removing their hats and knelt, often emotionally overcome, as he pointed these thousands upon thousands to God's grace. For over 50 years, to such drink-sodden, brutalized and neglected multitudes, Wesley held out the word of life. See, Wesley understood that individual conversion must lead to changes in society. And this was hammered home in different ways. Thirteen years before the abolition committee was formed, he publishes his thoughts upon slavery, a graphic, vehement and penetrating treatise denouncing this horrible, vicious trade as a, a national disgrace. He kept up his attack on slavery until the end of his life, the last letter he wrote being to Wilberforce. By the same token, he deplored the stupidity and futility of war, especially Britain's war with American colonies. He frequently wrote and spoke about the use and abuse of money and privilege. He wore inexpensive clothes and dined on the plainest fare, not spending more than £30 a year on his personal needs. He supported fair prices, a living wage, honest and healthy employment for all. There is no question but that Wesley was more familiar with the life of the poor than any other public figure of his age. It is given to few people, as it was given to John Wesley, to see the reward of their labours. In the first decades of his ministry, his arrival or that of his followers into any town or village was a signal for a violent popular uprising. In the last ten of his 88 years, it's no exaggeration to say Wesley was the most respected and loved figure in the kingdom. We've seen something of what England was like before Wesley and the revival. Now briefly, let's look at what it was like after him. Further fruit of Wesley's work was the conversion of William Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury and others, and the development of the Clapham sect, so-called, because they live around Clapham Common. This group of evangelical Christians included businessmen, bankers, politicians, colonial governors, members of parliament, whose ceaseless and sacrificial labours benefited millions of their fellows at home and abroad. Peruse the lives and labours of the social emancipators of the 19th century. There is time to mention only a few of their names. Wilberforce and Clarkson, slavery abolished. Shaftesbury and Sadler, industrial emancipation. Elizabeth Fry and John Howard, prison reform. Plimsoll, ship safety regulations. You ask my father who designed ships, who saved more lives on ships than any other man in history. It's Plimsoll, whose work was the direct result of the revival of the 18th century. Hannah Moore and Robert Rakes, who established Sunday schools. When the work of the revival had been established, many missionary societies were formed, all within a few years of each other. The Baptist Missionary Society, the London Missionary Society, the Wesleyan Missionary Society, the Church Missionary Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society, the China Inland Mission. That missionary spirit stirred up thousands of Christian young men and women to go to the uttermost parts of the world, often at great personal cost and sacrifice, and serve people who could not repay them anything. That same missionary spirit also moved millions of people who could not go overseas personally to assume a moral obligation for the welfare of others, to pray and to give generously. The lives of politicians were affected. England, after Wesley, saw many of his century's evils eradicated because hundreds of thousands became Christians. Their hearts were changed, as were their minds and attitudes, and so the society, the public realm, was affected. Thus, in a direct line of descent came the following improvements. The direct line of descent. The abolition of slavery and the emancipation of industrial workers in England. I know that I've done little justice to the enormous range of achievement of evangelicals from Wilberforce to Shaftesbury, John Wesley's spiritual sons, each of whom honoured Wesley as the greatest man of his time. Then came, and all these movements were established in the first half of the 19th century, 
factory schools, ragged schools, the humanizing of the prison system, reform of the penal code, the establishing of the Salvation Army, the Religious Tract Society, the Pastoral Aid Society, the London City Mission, Muller's Homes, Fegan's Homes, the National Children's Homes and Orphanages, the forming of evening classes and polytechnics, Agnes Weston's Soldiers and Sailors Rest, YMCA's, Bernardo's Homes, the NSPCC, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Guys, the RSPCA, the RSPCA. Break from the lecture for a minute. It used to publish at the beginning of its rules, began with a sermon by John Wesley. The list is incomplete. 99 out of 100 people behind these movements were Christians, and all these movements evidence the cause and effects. God's raising up of Wesley led to the great awakening of hearts, minds, consciousnesses, consciences, and wills. What could God accomplish through you? What could God accomplish through you? Through us. Wesley was abused for most of his life. He wasn't a great man. He just gave himself to God and to others. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God by resisting evil and doing good. I'm just going to let you sit in silence for a minute. Come Holy Spirit, we pray, come and speak to us. Change us.